go back and just pick up just for a minute what we've been saying about Isaiah 8 to 10. Um, We've been talking about the false kingdom and the true kingdom. Uh, Up to this point, from 8 to 10, we've been talking about the false kingdom. (laughs) Uh, It's gotten kind of wearisome uh, at times. The judgments are harsh. They're hard. Uh, They they are more than we'd like to hear about. But there is coming one who uh, is uh, the Redeemer, and that's what we turn to in chapter 11. Thank you. Finally, we can talk about something happy. Uh, so now we turn to the true kingdom. Okay? All right. Uh, we had a missions conference this week, and I attended one of the sessions with a fellow whose name I have promptly forgotten. Um, <laughs> but he wrote a book called The Global Gospel. And he's, he's addressing the question... Um, our mission effort, he's, he's suggesting, has probably gone as far as it can on the basis of mercy. We're going to have to have some view of the gospel, not change the gospel, but come to understand the gospel at, at a level that we have not understood. He says uh, we have understood it at a legal level, but we've never come to understand it on a relational level, and specifically... Uh, in the cultural point of view that um, the ancient people would have, and most people in the world today would have understood. So uh, I, I commend that book to you. I've read the first chapter. Um, it's unsettling. Uh, I've already been introduced to some of the ideas he's dealing with. But one of the key issues is the issue of kingdom. What does it mean to be in a kingdom? What does it mean as, as Sixto prayed? We, we piddling little people come into the presence of the living God. How can that be? And the answer is God, God is the person with supreme honor. And by drawing us into relationship with himself, he has given us supreme honor. The, the, the really strange thing is if you were a king who's conquered a new territory, you were going to set up a, a, a government in that new territory. You wanted to use people, <clears throat> your supporters, yes, uh, as part of your government in that territory. Who would you choose? What kind of people would you choose? Typically, we would think, well, I'd choose leaders. Wouldn't, wouldn't you say that? It's not what God does. <laughs> He's in the business of making silk purses out of sow's ears. Hmm? Thank God. Thank God. <laughs> uh, the, the issue for us to understand is that God has taken us... Uh, uh, turn just a moment to Psalm 113. <clears throat> it occurs to me that Psalm 113 speaks specifically to this issue. 113th Psalm. In my Bible, it's right after Psalm 112. Uh, so... <laughs> Um, verse 5 is where I want to start. Who is like the Lord our God who, has, who is enthroned on high? He has supreme honor. Who humbles himself to behold the things um, in Hebrew, he makes himself low. 
He makes himself high to sit, and he makes himself low uh, to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Uh, hallelujah. Are you with me here? Uh, so, um, so what we're looking at in Isaiah as we start to chapter 11, what we're looking at is the true kingdom of which you are now uh, participants. As believers in Jesus Christ, you are, you are in the new kingdom. You have the honor quotient, if you will, you know what an intelligence quotient is, yes? More or less? Yeah? Uh, I've not taken one of those tests because I don't want to know. And I don't want anybody else to know for sure. <laughs> but but uh, um, an, an intelligence quotient, by the same token, we can talk about an honor quotient. Your honor quotient is off the scale because you've been brought into relationship with a living God. Um, the problem with, with much of Muslim missions is um, they can't even conceive, number one, of, of relationship with God, and um, uh, they think of themselves as shamed, and they can't find a way to get out of the shame. Are you with me here? Um, we think of shame as something I feel when I've done something bad. But shame is much stronger than that. It's a much more significant thing than that. It is, um, the, it is the assumption, both personally and communally, that one is without value. Um, but you are not without value if you're a child of God. You are a child of God. That is your new honor quotient. Does this make sense to you? But Jim, you don't know the sin in my life. I don't need to. I know the sin in my life. Okay? Are you with me? Uh, Jesus has established us as children of God with his honor quotient. I, I stand in the name of Jesus. So what is this new kingdom going to look like? What is this king like as we go to Isaiah chapter 11 then? Uh, as we turn then in our study, the Messiah and his kingdom. Take us up 11 and 12, and we're going to do both chapters today, Lord willing, um, if, if I don't get too many really hard questions. <laughs> but uh, salvation would not come from the pomp and glory of the royal house. Rather, it would come from the promise of one who could create a royal house from a peasant family. So, chapter 11. Uh, verse, uh, let's start, uh, verses, oh wait, um, in the place of, and this is pretty important too here. I, I pulled out two or three quotations this morning that, that really capture some crucial issues. In place of the craven um, and petty house of David. That's hard for us to read, isn't it? Because David's a good guy. Who is an adulterer and a, and a 
and a premeditated murderer. All of the kings of Israel, of, of Judah, are judged by the standard of David. And David is a forgiven adulterer and premeditated murderer. But he's still a man who committed adultery and premeditated murder. Are you with me here? Um, yeah. So when God said that David was a man after his own heart, yeah. was that was God able to say that because it was prior to his sin? Or would he still say it of David on his I think deathbed? he'd still say it of David on his deathbed, and here's why. What does it mean that David is a man after God's own heart? Uh, he says that in the context of, of the rejection of King Saul. And in that setting, what's, what's different about David from King Saul? Um, the only things Saul did, I th- they were bad. I mean, you know, from God's point of view, they were disqualifying, uh, disqualifying factors. But the only things that he did that were bad, um, there were two. Oh, he didn't kill the Agagites, and he didn't uh, wait to sacrifice until Samuel got there. Those are the only two things that he did that were bad. On our scale, adultery and premeditated murder would outweigh both of those. But, but what is there about Saul? What is it about him that makes him a man that must be rejected from the kingship? What is it about David that he must be the man who becomes the standard for everything else? Well, yeah, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> let me, let me, I got someplace I'm going here. I want to get there. <laughs> Saul, if you watch the plot conflict in First and Second Samuel, the plot conflict revolves around who has the right to dispose of the kingdom. See, dispose of the kingdom. Who has the right to dispense kingdom honors? Okay. Well, God does, but not in Saul's mind. In Saul's mind, I'm the king. I'm going to give the kingdom to Jonathan. So Saul has lost the notion that he's the servant of God and is not really the king. He is the vice regent. Um, by the way, king in Hebrew is a really elastic term. You can be king of a village or king of an empire. Are you with me? So um, it's really, really broad. Uh, and so when you think of king, you must, you must kind of water it down a bit there. Saul doesn't think of himself as God's servant. David always does. He comes nearest failure when he comes nearest forgetting it. So in the spring of the year when kings go out to battle, David was in Jerusalem. But when Nathan came to David and confronted him about his sin, what was David's response? I, I have sinned against the Lord. He, he doesn't deny it. He doesn't fight it. He doesn't, he doesn't kill the messenger. He accepts the judgment of God. And uh, remember, do you remember the census that David took? Yeah. Um, there are problems there I don't want to go into, so please don't, don't ask any questions about that. But uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the census that David took, the prophet comes to David and says, I'm going to give you three choices. And what was David's choice? How did he, how did he make his decision? He threw himself on the mercy of 
Yeah. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, not into the hands of men. Are you with me here? Uh, this, is the, this is the response of a man who knows that he is not king. God is king. I am his servant. And he, he maintains that attitude. When he's rushing, when he's rushing out of Jerusalem, he goes out Mount, Olives, Mount of Olives and then goes down on the other side. And as he's going down, uh, I've forgotten the guy's name, the, the uh, relative of King Saul's family, Shimei, was that his name? Um, and he comes out to curse David. And his uh, supporters say, let's go kill that dead dog. And David says, no. This might be from the Lord. If the Lord is pleased with me, he will return me to the city. If he is not, are you with me here? I, I'm his servant. And David is always God's servant, even in his, in his failures. Does this make sense? Right. Um, so it's not from the petty house of David, uh, Oswald says, that uh, the uh, uh, that the I'm sorry, in place of the craven and petty house of David or the arrogant and oppressive empire of Assyria, here is a king whose hands, um, in whose hands the concerns of the weakest will be safe. So let's look at it. Beginning part, however, he, he goes on to say, such a return will, um, will be under the aegis of an anointed descendant of David. Isn't that good news? With all the failing failures of the house of David, with all of David's failures, he's still rewarded. So, verses, um, uh, verse 1, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Do you remember the stump Back in chapter 6. Look, look back in 6 just to see this. At the end of the chapter, uh, verse 10, God gives Isaiah his marching orders. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. God's done with this generation. They're going to be judged. He's sending Isaiah as the agent of judgment. The interesting thing is the message that is the agency of judgment, the instrument of judgment, is the message of hope for the future. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he answered, until the cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. And the Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be for burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Nothing left but a stump. And out of a stump grows a weak little branch. Chapter 11, verse 1. So does that mean he didn't totally cut off the house of David? No, he hasn't. What he's done is he's, he's cursed one line of the house of David, but not the whole house. Uh, t- turn to Matthew, chapter 1. 
this is what I didn't anticipate, but it's okay. We'll do this. Matthew chapter 1. We talked about this recently. Uh, Matthew 1, you have the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew. Uh, there are breaks in the genealogy you need to pay attention to. First break is at verse 6. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by, uh, my text says Bathsheba. Uh, that name is not in the Greek text. It's by her who, was, who had been the wife of Uriah. Yeah. Uh, so that David is a suspicious source for the house that he's the head of. Now, another break comes at verse 11 and 12. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation of Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel became the father of Zerubbabel. What, what do you know about Jeconiah? Anything? He is so bad that to the prophet Jeremiah, God says, if this man were the signet ring on my hand, what does it mean to be a signet ring? It's his authority. It's the seal of his kingship. If this man were the signet ring on my hand, I would cast him from me. No descendant of this man will prosper sitting on the throne of David, ruling over the house of Israel. Turn to Luke now. Um, another genealogy of, of Jesus. We have traditionally treated it as the genealogy of Mary, but Mary doesn't show up in it. It's in Luke chapter 3. Mary's not even mentioned in this. She's at least mentioned in, in Matthew, but she's not mentioned here. So verse 23, Luke 3, 23. <clears throat> when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Matthat, etc., etc. Are you with me so far? No? Seventy-some generations here. Um, what I want to do is go down to verse 27. The son of Yoanan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri. That's, that's not what we read in Matthew. Yeah. So, what's going on? I think what's going on is Matthew gives the, the, the legal line of the kingship. Luke gives the natural line of the kingship. You will say, but, but if Mary isn't descended from David, Jesus has none of David's DNA. Hey, folks, who created DNA? Who created DNA? God did. He can create David's DNA in Jesus. It's okay. No problem. Are you with me here? So what's the, what's the deal here? He cannot be king if he's the heir of Jeconiah, but through Shealtiel and Zerubbabel, the only two names after Jeconiah that are common to both genealogies, after Shealtiel and Zerubbabel, David, uh, Jesus can be a descendant of David, but not through Jeconiah, and he can be therefore king. Are you with me here? Yes, no? In, at some time, 
go read Second Chronicles. Uh, one to eight, I think it is. I've forgotten how far Solomon's reign goes. But at, um, um, at key points in Second Chronicles, you have um, a, re- a reiteration to Solomon of the Davidic kingship, of, of the Davidic covenant, and it's made conditional. And here's, here's why, folks. If I make a covenant with you and your descendants, yes? The reason I make a covenant with you, I'm, the reason God made a covenant with David is that he was, a, he was a faithful man. Are you with me? Yes? So Psalm 22 tells us that God is the one who made him faithful, but David's a faithful man. So, so he's going to give David a covenant and that covenant entails having an heir and having a throne in perpetuity. Are all of David's descendants equally heirs of the Davidic covenant? No. Only one in any generation is. <laughs> yes? So which one? Well, whomever God chooses. But at some point, he may not find a worthy candidate so if your sons walk according to my commandments and walk in the way of your father David, if, are you with me here? So once you say to David and his heirs, who gets to define who the heirs are? Well, the giver of the covenant. Does that make sense to you? And with Jeconiah, there are no more fit heirs until Jesus comes along. But Zerubbabel and, Gialt, and, and especially Zerubbabel is a fit heir. I won't have you turn to Haggai 2. That's a minor prophet. We'd have to take a break. But um, Haggai chapter 2, in, in the last verse, verse 23, um, God says, through Haggai to Zerubbabel, I will make you my signet ring. Are you with me? So an heir of Zerubbabel can become the king of, of Israel. And if he is the king of Israel, we, we, I don't remember whether we've talked about this or not, but Psalm 2, uh, you know the verse very well, Psalm 2, 7. Um, Though I will declare the decree the Lord said to me. Who is the me there? Who is the I who's speaking? Hmm? I, I hear a little peeps and murmurs, but nothing. Huh? No, I will declare the decree the Lord said to me. David. David. Acts 4 says David wrote, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Acts 4 says David wrote Psalm 2. So, I will declare the decree the Lord said to me, you are my second member of the Trinity. David is now the second member of the Trinity, right? No. He's the king. You are my son, this day I have begotten you. Right? What does it mean to be the son of God? It means to be king. It's, you, know, you know this from 2 Samuel 17. Um, to David, he says, one coming from your own loins will sit on the throne after you. I will be his father. He shall be my son. You remember this? Yes. Um, so we're talking about the king. But this king has a destiny. That's Psalm 2.7. Psalm, 2, Psalm 2.8 Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your personal possession. That's what we're reading about in Isaiah 11. Let's go back to Isaiah 11 then. 
a shoot will spring. Just a shoot. Just a weak little branch will spring from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Then his qualifications, verses 2 to 4, uh, two, 2 to 5. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Um, here is the equipment of this king. Let's talk about them for just a minute. He, he is The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. That word rest is very important in Old Testament theology. In um, Genesis 5, um, when, why, was, why, why did Noah's father name him Noah? Do you remember? Yeah, <laughs> these little things slip by and we don't pay much attention to them. Perhaps he will give us rest from our labors. And the labor, they, they, it's of own, the pains that are caused by sin back in chapter 3. Are you with me here? Perhaps this one will give us rest. Then in Deuteronomy, uh, Moses says, and earlier in Numbers, but the particular word that I'm thinking about occurs in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, Moses says to the um, two and a half tribes that settled on the east side of the Jordan, Manasseh, um, I'm sorry, Manasseh, Reuben, and Gad, those two and a half tribes that settled over there, you must go over with your brothers and take the land until the Lord gives them rest as he has given you rest. That is, fulfillment of the promises of God. When Joshua then goes in, he finally tells those two and a half tribes, you can go home. God has given rest to your brothers. Are you with me here? Rest is then picked up in Hebrews. Um, Let us therefore be, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. Let us be therefore zealous to enter that rest. Are you with me here? If Joshua had given them rest, there would have been no place sought for another. Yes, remember this? Uh, so, So why does Psalm 95 talk about rest? Why does Moses talk about rest if Joshua didn't give them rest? Because there's a rest that remains for the children, for the people of God. Are you yes? But we must be zealous to enter it. Have you ever seen anybody resting zealously? <sighs> Depends on how loudly you snore, I guess. But <laughs> my wife says that I, I used to snore really, really badly. I still snore, but not so badly. So maybe I don't rest as zealously as I used to. But if you must be zealous, you're not resting. And furthermore, if you must be zealous to enter it, then probably where are you? Out of it. So there's a rest that remains for us. It's coming, and it's coming at the time when the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. Are you with me here? Yes? So... The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. This is the beginning of rest for the creation. Verse 2 continues, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. He will have the mind of the Lord, so he brings the wisdom of the Lord. And the, the word understanding, do you have understanding in your text? Right. That word is a word that comes from a Hebrew word that means uh, uh, to be between. So it's, it's the idea of making distinctions between 
not only what's good and bad, but what's good and what's best. And uh, Howard Hendricks used to say, the good can become the enemy of the, be of, of the best. So there are things that are, that are good for worldlings that are not good enough for you because your honor quotient is the honor quotient of Jesus. Are you with me here? So my task in following this king who is endowed with the spirit of wisdom and understanding is not merely to shun evil and embrace good, but it's perhaps even to shun the good and embrace the best. But he has also the spirit of counsel and strength. After all, his, one of his names in Isaiah 9 is, is marvel of a counselor. A counselor, a, a, a person whose plans are so astonishing, no one else could come up with them. And he has the ability, the strength to carry it out. He has the spirit of, of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Knowledge here is going to show up again before we're done with this passage. But knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He is intimately related to the Lord, and he lives in the fear of the Lord, this king. Verse 3, he will delight in the fear of the Lord. This probably, this is a hard verse to translate. There are two or three places in this passage that are quite difficult. This one is particularly difficult. The verb is not understood. It's not well understood. People are on all sides what it means. But something like this must be there. What does it mean to delight in the fear of the Lord? It's not merely that he delights to fear the Lord. It's that he delights when he sees others who fear the Lord. Uh, and if you say to me, but, 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 wait a minute. Perfect love casts out fear. You're right, but don't interpret the whole Bible on the, light, on, on the strength of one verse only. Uh, John never uses fear in a positive sense. But Peter and Paul do. Uh, Peter talks about the necessity of fearing the Lord. Yes, ma'am. Yes, but also trembling. Yes. Both. Yeah. So it depends on the context. Yeah, but but it, it always includes trembling. Uh, in Exodus twenty twenty, we we we've, we've done this in time past together. Uh, Exodus twenty twenty is one of the important verses on fear of the Lord. You need to uh, learn it. This is after the giving of the Ten Commandments. And the people come to Moses and say, look, <laughs> we've heard God speaking from the, from the mountain. <laughs> and we've seen that God can speak to humans and, and humans live. But now why should we die? What do they expect from God? Yeah. Destruction. You go listen. to if, if, <laughs> You're of a different cut than we are. You go listen to what the Lord says. Come back and tell us and we will hear it and we'll do it. And God said, Moses said to the people in Exodus 20, 20, Do not fear, for God has appeared to you that the fear of the Lord might be upon you all the days of your life. <laughs> and when I said that some months ago, uh, one, of the, one of you in the class said, Well, are there two different words for fear? And, no, same word in Hebrew. <laughs> so what does it mean to fear the Lord? It means kind of what it meant, I think, and I think what it meant when I was afraid of my mother when she was 80. Uh, she wasn't going to spank me at 80. I could outrun her. <laughs> uh, 
But what, what, was, what was it I was afraid of? I was afraid of doing something that would bring grief to her eyes. I didn't want to see that. I didn't want to hear grief in her, in her voice about some decision I had made. Are you with me here? But what's even more important is fearing the Lord in Deuteronomy verses six, uh, chapters 6 to 11 is part of the explanation of what it means to love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Don't pit John against the rest of the Bible. Understand that authors can use words in their own senses, and they're not wrong, but they have to be understood in light of a whole context, not just in light of one verse. Are you with me here? Uh, so, so the fear of the Lord, he takes, this king takes pleasure in people who fear the Lord, and he goes on, he will not judge by what his eyes see. <clears throat> Folks, did, did Jesus love the Lord with all his heart, soul, and strength? But he looked often like a, an evildoer. To, to religious people, he did. Yes? And even to you and me, because in John, what chapter is that? Seven? No, I forgot. Seven, I think it is. Uh, it was time for the festival, and his, brother, he, 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 his brothers were going up to, the, to Jerusalem. They say, aren't you going up to this feast? He says, I'm not going up to this feast. So they go on to the feast, and then he goes to the feast. That looks like a lie, but it's Jesus. I don't understand how it's not a lie, but it's Jesus. Are you with me here? Yes, no? Right. I can't understand Jesus. He doesn't fit in my categories. I must learn to fit in his categories. Are you with me? So, but but this this person... doesn't judge by what his eyes see. He can see people who to us would look like they don't fear God and see in fact that they do because he doesn't judge by what his eyes see. And he goes on, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. Isn't that part of the problem in our world? Too much is, I, we're watching this in our day, are we not, in our, in our own land? People of privilege, people of position, people of, of power get away with Ill, illegal acts. And it, it doesn't matter which side of the aisle you're talking from here. Um, and common people, the poor baker in Colorado takes, gets taken to the court twice are you with me here where's the justice there isn't justice what are we going to do well we'll stand for justice and pray for the coming of the kingdom but he goes on with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth He he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth (laughs) <laughs> he's got terrible bad breath, bad breath and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked what's he mean he's saying by his pronouncements as a judge he will bring about the death of the wicked in verse 5 also righteousness will be hit the belt around his loins and faithfulness the belt around his waist obviously figurative language but what's the point folks the belt is, is a, again, this is a hard, hard verse to explain. 
because there are at least two different views on this, but I'll give you the, the one that I think might be a, appropriate. When you're going to work, you, you wear long robes, yes, in Israelite society, yeah? So when you're going to work, you reach down between your legs and pull it up, pull up the uh, hem and tuck it into your belt. This, he goes to work with righteousness and with justice. Are you with me here? Everything he does is marked by righteousness and justice. Here's, here's where you and I get into trouble, because when Fred, when your, what, what was her name, Eckert? Um, when Dr. Eckert is going through all these things, somebody, somewhere in her relationship group is going to say, where's the justice in this? Is God fair? And the answer is, yes. But you see, we've forgotten in the darkness what we've learned in the light. God is fair. I just have to define fairness the way God defines fairness. We've got some family situations going on in our family that are just, they're so wrong. There's so much just open evil uh, uh, coming toward one of our um, family members just struggling and you think, is there no end, Lord? Is there no end? And sometimes those things go on for years. And for this particular member of the family, it's been going on nearly all her life. She's, how old is she? 40-something? Okay, 42. She's 42, and this has been going on since before she was a teenager. Is there no relief for her? And the answer is, not yet. It's coming. I don't know when. But it keeps getting worse and keeps getting worse and keeps getting worse. All you can do in those kinds of times is just cling. You remember Jacob wrestling with the angel in Genesis 32? Once the angel put his hip out of joint, all he could do was just cling. When you're a wrestler, you've got to have your legs. But all he could do was just hold on. Are you with me here? Verse now six. Um, the second David will also be equipped for his office by the Spirit, which will bring about agreement between the will of God and that of the king. And finally, or next, verses six to nine, he's the all powerful servant. Uh, and the wolf will dwell with the lamb. Wolf dwells with the lamb? That's not what wolves do with lambs. <laughs> yes, they invite them to dinner. <laughs> I'd like to have you over for dinner. <laughs> so, so what's happening? Um, the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. There's, a, there's an image here on the uh, next slide to speak of here. Um, the ruler will be the servant not because he is too weak to dominate, but because he is strong enough not to need to crush. Here the picture, you can just see in that top box there between the trees, you can see a character who is Ishtar, the lead goddess of Babylonian and Assyrian religion. But her foot is on a lion. What does that suggest? She has subdued the lion. She controls the lion. 
What's different between Ishtar and this king? Yes, but this king has changed the natures of the lion and the wolf and the bear and the leopard. Are you with me here? The leopard is the chief, is the god is the um, uh, Ishtar. By the way, is the goddess of love and war. That's fascinating. The connections in the ancient Near East between love and war. Uh, but um, uh, one of the goddesses, Inanna, in in Sumerian religion, her chief animal was the was the leopard or panther, and she. This leopard or panther, whatever the precise Hebrew word means at that point, his character has been changed. Everything's changed. This is the nature of this king. And the, and the little boy will lead them. <laughs> Verse 7. Also the cow and the bear will graze. The Egyptians hadn't run into bears till they started invading uh, Canaan. And there were bears in Canaan. They, 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 they were kind of stunned by bears, at the ferocity of bears. Um, but the cow and the bear will graze, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. Their young will lie down together. The nursing child will play by the hole of the, co- hole of the cobra. Our grandsons had found a, a what, a rattlesnake? It wasn't a rattlesnake. What was it? Some kind of a poisonous snake. They're fascinated by everything herpet- in, 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 uh, that creeps and crawls. <laughs> so, uh, and they were carrying they were carrying around this 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 poisonous snake for some period before my uh, daughter and son found out about it. And they ministered to the animal, but <laughs> but. Uh, but now a little child's playing on the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child would put his hand into the viper's den. One of our grandsons was poking a stick and starting to reach into a hole in a tree. There's probably a snake in there. Jan said, you're not going to do that. He said, well, I know more about snakes than you do. And Jan said, you probably do, but I'm the, I'm the adult, and you're not going to do that. No, I'm, I'm wiser than you are. <laughs> and he said, my dad would let us. Do it, and he, she said, but your dad isn't here. So <laughs> it, her, it, his dad wouldn't let him do it either. But, um, but here, but things have changed. How? This king has changed everything. This is his, his um, great power. Verse 9, they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Just think how deep the sea is and the, and the knowledge of the Lord. It, it'll be like Noah's flood all over again, but it's not a flood of water. It's a flood of knowledge. Verse, um, now verse uh, 10, um, the extent of the Messiah's reign. Then in that day, and when you see in that day, you're looking to a future that God has planned. So in that day, the nations will report uh, will resort to the root of Jesse. Wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute. Who is he? Go back to verse one. Who is this person? He's a shoot from the from the stem of Jesse. But now, who is he? The root of Jesse. How can this be? This is Jesus' challenge in 
the Gospels when the, when the various groups of Israel are coming to him and trying to challenge him. By the way, it's an, it's an honor-shame game. It's an honor game in which the new guy on the block has to be tested. Where do you fit in the, in the pecking order? And so if he can't answer their questions, then they are wiser than he. But now he is able to answer their questions, but more than that, he's able to pose a question that they can't answer. Whose son is Messiah? Who's David's son? Well, if he's David's son, how does David, speaking by the Spirit, call him Lord? The Lord said to my master, sit upon my right hand until I make the, your enemies the footstool of your feet. And they're not able to answer. They drop in their honor quotient. They lose honor because Jesus has risen in honor. Fred? Jim, in our prophetic musings, our prophetic time frame, that day, what, what is that day? When is that day? It always depends on the context, but here it's the day when the king is on the throne and ruling. So, but this, but it's always different. Uh, that day could be a day of uh, Assyria's attack on the northern kingdom. Or it could be plagues in Egypt, potentially. But uh, it, it depends entirely on the context. This is not necessarily when Jesus comes back. Well, this is in, in Isaiah 11. Uh, but but that, that phrase, in that day, is not always a reference to the return of the Lord. Um, so in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples. And his resting place, his resting place will be glorious. Rest. What, what's that? We talked about it early. Work is complete. Yeah. Well, yeah. This, this is the time of the fulfillment of the promises of God. His resting place. Yeah, if I, I, I hope so. <laughs> okay, in this you mean? Yeah, it, it, folks, it's it's what we've said before about Psalm twenty three. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his namesake. See, the way he leads his people reflects on his reputation, and it's not what he leads them to do; it's how he leads them to where they need to be in his righteousness. Um, we, we talked about righteousness last week, I think. Um, I had you turn to Isaiah 46, 12, and 13. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted, you who are far off from righteousness. Behold, I bring my righteousness near. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay, so that righteousness in God with a sinful people is to save them. Why? Because they didn't come seeking God. Did Israel want God in Egypt? No, they wanted to stay in Egypt. They wanted to get out of slavery, but they wanted to stay in Egypt. That was home. They'd been there 400 years. Why should we leave now? And when they got out, they wanted to go back. Yes? They were not seeking God. God came seeking them. And this is Psalm 22. You made me trust in you from my mother's breast. I wasn't looking for you. You came looking for me. You brought me into relationship with yourself. What are you doing? Why are you bringing this suffering into my life? David asks. So in Psalm 23, if God leads his sheep in such a way that the sheep get lost, he's a bad shepherd. 
Isaiah 46, 12. If God leads Israel in such a way that Israel gets lost, he's a bad shepherd. And in fact, Isaiah 46 is part of a very important section in Isaiah, begins in 41, where God calls the nations to, to court to see who among those who are called gods has the right to be called God. And then he calls for the testimony of the nations, they give none. He calls for the testimony of the gods, they give none. You will say to me, I bet, oh, isn't this kind of stacked against them? Because I'm God's prophet. Amen. But the answer is, one, one, of, the, one of the commentators that, that does, he's, he's a strange commentator. He's so good and so bad all at the same time. But, but he said, the other gods could predict the future and carry out their, their plans. But they had no plan. That is, what they, what they did, what they would do tomorrow wasn't part of a plan that started centuries ago. That's the difference between the gods of Babylon and Assyria and the God of Israel. I told you this long ago so that you could not say, my gods did this. Are you with me here? So the point is that God has a plan that's been at work since before creation. This is... Romans 3, 29 and 30, which I cannot quote because they're too Calvinistic. But whom he did, he also did to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And whom he, he also called, and whom he, and whom he called, he also justified, and whom he justified, he also glorified. So from eternity past to eternity future, your life as a child of God is involved in a plan to make you like Jesus, and it will not fail because if he doesn't get you home with something to praise, he gets no praise out of your life. And he must be honored above all things. This is back to that honor-shame issue that we're talking about. My honor is to honor him, and remarkably enough, his honor is to honor us. Are you with me? That's, That's the strange thing. That when he is honored, he brings us along. We watched a, 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 an episode of Medal of Honor yesterday. Uh, this fellow, it was from Afghanistan, this uh, Congressional Medal of Honor winner, winner uh, recipient is a better term, um, had, had helped 58 men. He was a sergeant in the company that was there. Helped 58 men fend off over 300 attackers. Uh, and uh, they gave him the Congressional Medal of Honor. But at his request, they brought his team with him. And so they were all there in the room at the White House as he received the Medal of Honor. But have you ever heard any testimonies from Medal of Honor recipients? They never say, I did really something amazing. They always say, I just did my duty. I did what anybody else would do in the situation. But they also always say, I, I received this on behalf of the men that I served, not because of what I'm doing. Um, and that's critical. See, folks, when Jesus is honored, he honors his people too. That's where the fear comes in, that we don't grieve the spirit. Right? No, no, no. It's just, it's fear of the Lord. It is, what, it is, 
fearing the Lord is what loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength is. And, fearing the, and loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength is what faith is. Because uh, Paul quotes that passage in Deuteronomy uh, in Romans 10 in his final argument for righteousness by faith. The, the point I want to get to in all this, folks, is this is your future. Um, your future is not a grave someplace. Your future is not whatever you think your future is. Your future is here in Isaiah 11. When he is honored, you will be honored with him. Folks, what kind of honor does Job have in our thinking? Yeah, suffered terribly, yet clung to the Lord. He talked hard to the Lord, but he talked to the Lord. And God could say at the end of the book to the three friends, you have not said about me what is right as my servant Job has. He, said that they say, he says that twice. For all the hard, hard, hard things that Job said, he said it to the Lord. Are you with me here? Mm-hmm. And we're still talking about Job. Job seems to be the most faithful man that ever lived. Would seem to be. Seem to be. Um, but what does that mean? Well, let me close this part of our study out. We'll have to come back to this next week. Let me close this out with Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And it's not the verses you think. (laughs) Um, Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's your honor quotient. Somebody asked Jonathan Edwards, will you see John Wesley in, uh, in heaven? He said, no. He said, he'll be so close to the throne, he'll be swallowed up by all the glory and I won't be able to see him. But Jonathan Edwards is wrong. We're seated with him in the heavenly places. And here's the purpose, verse 7. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You will be honored for all eternity as people who have received grace. Because this is the king that you serve. This is what his kingship is like. We'll go on with this um, later, but right now it's time to stop and pass. So let's, let's pray. Father, this is glorious, and our hearts yearn for these days to come. We are weary of this world, of its ways, But you're not finished with the world yet. You're not finished with us yet either. Give us faith to cling to you when we don't understand you. We never understand you. We know some things that are true about you, but we don't know how to put everything together that you do. So give us grace to to hold on when we don't understand. Give us grace to cry out, to argue, to complain before you. Give us grace to endure 
and then when we stand before Jesus in that day. Um, give us the grace at, of rejoicing because he is the one who is honored. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Amen.